All right, everyone, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter number five. John chapter five. Before we read our chapter 5 text, let's just do a moment of review. In chapter 1, we met John the Baptist, who declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the yellow block, we have verse 41, where Andrew and Peter, his brother, believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. In verse 49 of chapter 1, we realize that Philip and Nathanael believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he is the King of Israel. Chapter 2, we find out that Mary believes that Jesus has the power to deal with the lack of wine at the wedding in Canaan. After the miracle of turning water into wine, the text specifically reveals in verse 11 that his disciples believed in him. Then we turn the corner to verse 23 and we find out that the crowds believe in Jesus but he knows their hearts and does not believe that they believe in him. Chapter 3. Nicodemus does not believe the earthly things that Jesus is telling him about. Chapter 3 verse 15. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life but the one who does not believe does not obey And the wrath of God remains on him. Chapter 4 is a real turning point. The woman at Samaria believes that Jesus is the Messiah. The people of Sychar believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And still in chapter 4, the Roman official believes in Jesus and his entire household believes. Now let's read verse 1 of chapter 5 together. And this is a pretty significant turning point. We're going to meet a man who's been an invalid for 38 years of his life. And there's nothing said about him believing. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast. We don't know what feast it was. And the Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was, there, and now they're in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. A pool. In Aramaic, it's Bethesda, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then you'll notice if you have an ESV that it skips verse 4. Verse 5 says, One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he was, had already been a long time He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath 
And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Read verse 18 with me. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd bless our time together in your word this morning. May you be pleased with everything that's said. May we truly be challenged from the word of God in a significant way. In Jesus' name, amen. We will not get done this morning and that's fine. We'll just pick up where we left off last week, next week. Verse one, after this, there was a feast and we said already we don't know what feast this was. John doesn't include its name. But again, Jesus leaves northern Galilee, travels south to Jerusalem, and then makes the upward climb to get into the city. I have a map on the screen for you. I show you here the temple boundaries, and there's a small arrow pointing here to the sheep gate. This is the entrance by which the sheep, the lambs, the goats... Anything that was small went into the temple complex to be killed. There are two pools close to this gate, and one is named the name in our chapter, Bethsaida. So this word in Aramaic is significant. I'll show you that in a minute. On the screen is a picture of the archaeological dig of this site. You can see one of the colonnades of the five that are named here, are five roofed colonnades. I don't know whether that means the roof has five tiers or there are five support structures. Anyway, everyone knows the particular location. It's obvious, it's well known. The word here has an Aramaic or Hebrew origin and it means house of loving kindness or God's faithfulness or the loving kindness that Yahweh provides. So think about this for a moment. This man that's laying on this mat is going to receive an incredible dose of God's loving kindness in just a minute in this particular pool. Let's pause for a minute and talk about the fact that between verse 3 and 5 in the ESV, there's a verse missing. We need to know about why verses are missing. We need to be able to talk intelligent about these things in the ESV there is a footnote it's footnote number three and the footnote reads 
Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part. So let's make sure we understand when we say manuscript, we're talking about something copied in Greek. That's what we're talking about because that's the language of our New Testament. We've got to remember, church, this entire book of John, John, this book right here, was copied by hand. Now think about that. How many of you this afternoon would like to go home and copy the book of John this afternoon with a pen and a yellow legal pad? Let's imagine how long that would take. You think it would be four or five hours? Longer than that, Marcus? All right, how many feel like you could get it done with no mistakes? None. I mean, you just, every handwritten word is just perfect. You, I look at your copy and I look at that and it's like, that's identical. Would this not be a challenging task? Yes. Sure. So I'm just getting you to think the way you need to be thinking. All of John was preserved by manuscripts. Hand copies of hand copies of hand copies of hand copies. And what we don't know is whether this additional wording, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred the water, whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water healed whatever disease he had. What we don't know is, were these words inserted right here by a scribe? You say, why in the world would a scribe do that? Let's imagine that it's not first century, it's second century and you're copying. And let's imagine you're not in Jerusalem anymore, you're in Egypt. And you have no idea, why is there a man sitting at a pool? You've never read this story before, and you're thinking to yourself, why would anybody sit at a pool? I've never heard of anyone dropping into a pool and being healed. So I don't understand why this man is at this pool for 38 years waiting to be healed. So the scribe says, they're not going to know why he's standing there. So I'm going to provide some context to you. Now, if you were doing that, let's say you were that scribe, you'd probably put it in brackets. Or you'd put a footnote down. So that it makes it abundantly clear, this is not part of the original, but this will help you read it as it provides some context. Nod your head if you're following me just a little bit. Okay? And as a scribe, you'd be very tempted to just go ahead and provide a little help right there to what, to what needs to be for a clarifying detail from the story. So therein lies the struggle. So when I look at this exact same text in the uh, New American Standard Bible 1995, you will notice that they use brackets. Do you see it? Brackets. Well, what's a bracket? How do you use a bracket in the English language? How do you use a bracket in the English language? Are there any English teachers here this morning? How would you use a bracket in the English language? You want to insert something, right? And the bracket versus the parentheses are not the same, right? The bracket clearly communicates, I'm not the author of this, but I'm including it to help you figure out what's around it. So that's how the NASB is interpreting this with a footnote that says early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of three and four. So how do we deal with manuscript variants? I remember being a King James only person as a younger person. And I remember hearing 
Your Bible's missing something. I want the whole thing. Right? I don't want anything missing. So what we don't know is, is the text missing the verse or is the text without it more original? We don't know which one. Let me show it to you. There are 7,957 verses in the New Testament. That's including every verse that's in question. 1% of 7,957 would be 80 verses. Everyone follow me. 1%. As you compare the ESV to the King James, there are 18 times where they buried it in a footnote instead of putting it in the text, like you saw this morning, where we went three, five, and it's totally missing. 18 goes into 80 times, 0.23 or less than one-fourth of a percentage of what we're dealing with. And none of this less than one-fourth of a percentage point impacts orthodox doctrine. So let's think about our own story. Does the fact that an angel may or may not stir the water impact anything about this story? Yes or no? No. Jesus is still the Messiah. The man still gets healed. We still have the Sabbath controversy. You, if you didn't have verse numbers, you could have read that story front to back and not even wondered about that. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. Let me give you another example. We'll be done with this. In Luke 23, 17, <clears throat> see if you know this story as I read the verse to you, how well you know your New Testament. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Who's the he? Who remembers who the he is? Yes, it's Pilate, exactly. Now, you've never been to Jerusalem. You don't know about Roman governments. You don't know that at the feast he's supposed to release anyone. So you're wondering, why are they even having this idea of releasing someone? So the scribe adds, now he was obliged to release them at the feast of the prisoner. The ESV does not include it. The, uh, the LSB, which is the new NASB, does, but it uses the brackets. The King James, although the 1611 doesn't have any brackets, the printers afterwards inserted the parentheses, indicating the possibility that this may not be in the original gospel that Luke wrote. <clears throat> Let, let's stop for a minute. There's no indication that these writers of the New Testament knew that you would be reading what they wrote 2,000 years ago, later, 2,000 years. They didn't write like that. They didn't think to themselves, now I need to provide every detail that future readers of this are going to wonder about because they're not going to know Jerusalem. They're not going to know Greek. They're not going to know all these customs. That's not how they thought. They wrote in their day. So now you fast forward 300 years. Let me put three fingers up if I'm going to say 300 years. I'm glad you're feeling better, sister. I know you were pretty down under. Uh, 300 years ago, fast forward, you're no longer in Jerusalem. You're in one of the Asia Minor cities and you're making copies of Luke. And you know about this little rule or releasing of somebody, but you know your reader's not going to understand it. So what are you tempted to do as a scribe? Yep, you're tempted to provide some clarity right there. But because of the inconsistency, so Lee, uh, Lee, Lynn is a, uh, a scribe and Marcus is a scribe and you're in Asia Minor and you're in Greece and you include it,
but you don't include it. And sister, that's why we have some manuscripts with it and some manuscripts without it. You've got to... I know we want glass consistency. Put it on the glass, mash the button, 15 copies. You don't have that. You get the first copy of Luke. You make your copy and you hand it here and you hand it here. Now we have three copies. Are we guaranteed that all three are exactly the same? No. And then we double that to six. We double that to 12. Everyone follow where I'm going. And it goes everywhere. In many regards, you could say, it's a wonder we have any at all. How many other things do you have from 2,000 years ago? Stop and think about what I'm saying. 2,000 years is a giant amount of time. It is the providence of the Lord that we have what we have. Don't let these little tiny discrepancies, one-fourth of one percent, get interfere with your faith in the veracity of the Word of God. Nobody else has what we have. And think with me about how committed the biblical translator, translators are to give you footnotes, to make sure you understand. Some say it, some don't. This is incredible. So what we don't know, church, is it 99.7 or is it 100.23? Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't know that. We don't know whether the King James is actually more than what the original or is the ESV really missing something? And you know what? We're never going to know. Well, you could say I'll know in heaven. By the way, you're not promised to know everything in heaven, by the way. So what we're not clear about is this, this superstition. How many saw this chosen episode? This is the scene from it. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just grabbing a good picture. Okay. So is this superstition or not? Is this legend or truth? Did the locals believe an angel stirred the waters or did an angel actually stir the waters? If the text is part of John's original gospel, then John is endorsing an angel stirred the waters. If the text is a scribe's additional note, then it explains why the man was waiting by the pool. Nod your head if you're understanding the difference between the two. Good. We don't have any solutions. I just said all that almost for naught. We don't know. All right, we're done. Let's get to something more important, Pastor Sean. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. 38. 38 years. You wonder, not 37, not 39, not 40. Is there something significant about the 38? We'll look at that in a minute. When Jesus saw him lying there, Daniel, get up there on that mat and be a paralyzed. Let's go, Daniel. Let's go. Right there. Go. And be an invalid. Does he look like an invalid to you? We need a full-blown invalid, all right? He looks like he's sleeping in church now. All right, grab this idea. Get it in your mind. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a long time, he walks up and says, do you want to be healed? Let's make the side door of Jesus coming into this area. So we grab this concept. You stay right there. So here's Christ. Is there only one paralyzed person? Are there a lot of invalids here? And yet he singles out that man. Just one. Could Jesus have said, everybody's healed? Yes. 
Get in the pool. Sure. Could Jesus have healed through the pool? Yes. He finds this one individual who's been there for 38 years, and he asks him a simple question. Do you want to be healed? Don't say anything because you don't know what to say next. Because <laughs> the natural response is what? It's yes. But that's not what the man says. Look at your Bible. It's not what he says. We're, we're not expecting this answer. If you have been an invalid for 38 years, and I say to you, Debbie, do you want to be healed? Are you going to give me that answer? Now stop and think. The reality is, Marcus, it's impossible for us to grasp what it'd be like to be an invalid for 38 years. We have doctors, we have surgeries, we have prosthetics, we have the ability to make the bionic man. I mean, we can recreate. You have been an invalid for 38 very long years. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. Nobody. And when the water is stirred, I'm always a day late and a dollar short. Somebody beats me every single time. Is this a manifestation of his faith in Jesus? Anybody think this is faith in Jesus? Yes, John said it correctly. It's faith in a pool. And if someone could get me in that pool, I could be healed. And it don't look like you're going to try to help me get in the pool. Right? I mean, this is where we're at. So let's grab this transition. His faith is in the water. That's where his faith is. Yet what we're learning in chapter 5 is Jesus is not limited in his power to heal in proportion to human faith or the absence of sub-faith. Now, do you see that? Up to this point, it's always been a dialogue between the faith of the person and being saved, getting healed. But in this case, look at what Jesus says. Get up. Yeah, you. Yeah. Get up. But hold on. Look what he says next. Take up your bed. I'm going to let you use this, Daniel, as your bed. Take up your bed. Take up your bed and walk. I wasn't sure he knew what walking was. Now, awesome. Glory, hallelujah. We're thrilled. Let's talk about this. Did he know that he was healed? Did he feel something? What y'all's gut instinct here? Because the text doesn't tell us. You have never walked in 38 years. How many have had a broken bone before? You've had a broken bone. You've had a, raise your hand if you had a broken bone. Got some hands going up. Remember when they cut the cast off? You were just good to go immediately, right? You were just like pumping weights. That... No, it's bad, isn't it? It's terrible. I mean, it's like learning it all over again. That's why they got these people called physical therapists. Does he get a physical therapist in this case? No. 38 years since you've walked, Jesus says, get up, take up your mat and walk, and he's doing it. 
At this point, the entire crowd, everybody there, should be going bananas for the fact that a man who's been an invalid for 38 years is healed. Now look at this incredible sentence. Boom. Right in the middle of this great story. Now that day was the Sabbath. Like, what? What do I need that detail for? That day was the Sabbath? And it's repeated in verse 10. It's repeated in 16. It's repeated in verse 18. We think this story is about a man getting healed. It's not. It's not at all. That's not what this story is about. This story is about the Shabbat. That's what this is about. Notice this description that he uses. The Jews. Not the Pharisees. Not the Sadducees. The Jews. This is a John-only phrase. You can search for the Jews in Mark, Matthew. We don't have the Jews saying stuff like this. Five different times, chapter five, 2, 5, 8, and 11, the Jews said. Make no mistake about it. The transition is now John juxtapositioning the Galileans and the Samaritans to the Jews in Jerusalem. That's the transition that just happened. I know you can just lose it right there. That's why I went back and I reviewed all the way to chapter 4 for you to remind yourself that we've just had Samaritans, we've just had Galileans getting saved, now we're in Jerusalem. Jesus goes out of his way to find one man that's been an invalid for 38 years, calls him out. Please understand that these words, take up your mat, were fighting words. Fighting words. What are you talking about? The Pharisees are getting ready to pounce on this guy. They are steps away, John, from pouncing on him. Not because he's walking, but because he picked up his mat. Now let me ask you a question. Why did he pick up his mat? Because Jesus told him to. Jesus set him up for failure. Yes. The answer is yes. Could Jesus just as he said, get up and walk? Yes. And if he'd gotten up and walked, would he have been violating the Sabbath? Can you walk on the Sabbath? Yes, you can. You can. But when he told him, Darren, to pick up his mat, that was game over. You can't transport anything on the Sabbath. Even this little mat constitutes sinning on the Sabbath. Is that not crazy? This is significant. It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The CSB renders that the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Church, we're having a disagreement about that little thing right there. Is that not insane? Does anyone really think that me walking with or without this mat changes the level of exercise or just look at me? Like, this is a joke. This is a pretty light thing. 
That does not constitute work, right? Everyone, how did we get here? Go back to Exodus chapter 20, please. Go back to Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath in verse number 8 of Exodus 20. I'll give you a second to get there. Remember the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. That wasn't enough for the Jews. That just was not enough. That, that level of a prohibition was, no, no, no. We need 39 other addendums to that. There's no way you're smart enough to figure out what is and isn't work. We're going to define it for you. But wait a minute. Is it just the Jews or have we Baptists been guilty of this a little bit? Hmm. Let's think about this. The Bible says that we are to dress modestly. Oh, you can't figure out modestly. We're going to tell you what modestly is. Huh? This church right here, that was us. 1980s, 1990s. We told you what modest was. If you came in this church... In anything other than a skirt, we made you feel so uncomfortable, it's likely you wouldn't come back the next Sunday. Not good. Not bragging about that. I'm trying to give you a modern day example of where the Bible says, no work and rest. Bible says, be modest. No, 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 you, you're not, you can't figure out modest. You don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to figure out modest. We've got a clarify for you. I want you to think about how many mats are out there. How many are out there? How many of these mats are out there? The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. What's the man doing here? He's projecting, right? He's redirecting. Man, he learned that from Adam and he learned that from Eve, right? He knows how to do that. Every brother and sister knows how to do that. Huh? Okay. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? When you read this, when you heard this, were you not thinking like Captain Obvious, is anyone going to say who healed you? Do we not get this? Please understand. Come on, Daniel. Let's go quickly, quickly, quickly. Hurry. You can walk. Invalid. 38 years. 38 years. I'm 58. That means from 20 on, I have been an invalid. That's inconceivable to me. Why isn't everyone saying, who healed you? Why isn't that the question being asked? How is it that they are more concerned with a mat than the Messiah? How many religious people are out there that will miss the Messiah because of the mat? They love their doctrines. They love their pettiness. Me too. 
I'm just as guilty. In the height of my King James onlyism as a young man, if a chaplain came with any other translation, Georgie and I turned him off. You know what I did? Matt. I determined they had nothing to teach me. You said, he got it fixed? No, I don't have it fixed. There are a lot of things I still struggle with. The conservative in me doesn't like it when men wear earrings. So you know what I do? I put my mat up. I'm being honest. Your pastor is a sinner. Pray for me. I want to be aware of the mats in my life. I want to be aware of the fact that when I'm elevating the map above the Messiah, how do you elevate the mat above the Messiah? You put more attention to the earring than the fact that he, Christ, died for this man. Christ died for this woman. I like natural hair color. I'm bracing for myself for when my granddaughter decides she needs to dye it some strange color and I still have to love her. You know what that is? That's a mat. I need to be aware of the mats in my life. Do you have any? Do you have any mats in your life that you're more in love with than the Messiah? Are there things that keep you from seeing people for who they are because of your prejudices and biases? Now make no mistake, I'm not saying that we condone the sin. I'm saying that we're able to separate the person from the sin. Hello? Anybody struggle with it or is it just me? Am I by myself? Am I the only one that has a mat up sometimes? Or there's anyone else in this church that struggles sometimes at what I'm saying? We're packed with biases. We're born, we love our presuppositions and our biases if we're honest. We love our legalism. We're right all the time. Do you not get the fact that this is the issue? Now make no mistake about it. Don't miss this. This entire event was orchestrated in the providence and sovereignty of the Lord. Down to the very detail of take up your mat. If the Lord Jesus Christ had done it the day before or the day after, would we have had this issue? He could have waited till sunset and done it. The man wasn't going anywhere. Do you recognize the degree to which this was orchestrated by our Lord? All the way to the point of trying to show us that the Jews were more in love with the Torah than the God of the Torah. What about us? What pet doctrines are we, are we more in love with than the God of the do doctrine? Imagine this. They're having this conversation. It's an honest conversation. And then Jesus tells the man to pick up his mat and everything breaks out. All right, let's go to that 38 idea for just a minute. Would you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, please? Deuteronomy chapter 2. I'm not positive about this, but I think there's a chance that this is right. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2. 
This is the wilderness experience for the Jews. The wilderness experience for the Jews. Let's look at verse 14 together. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook of, how do I pronounce that? Zared. Was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. Now, I don't know if this is exactly right. I'm not positive about this. But I do think it's very interesting that our invalid Daniel right here for 38 years, not 39, not 37, the exact same number of years that the generation missed it from Kadesh Barnea. I can't help but to wondering, is Jesus here, is the author John projecting that this generation of Jews is going to be just like them? What happens in 70 AD? And what generation gets destroyed? The very generation that's more in love with the Torah than the Messiah. Do you remember Kadesh Barnea? Maybe you're not getting that reference. Do you remember Kadesh Barnea? That's where the spies determined that they couldn't take the land. Do you remember when only two said, Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. And the ten, the majority ruled. And God said, I understand. I'm okay with your rebellion. I don't mind. It's fine. No, it was devastating, wasn't it? I can't help but to wonder, is, is John projecting the same thing on the Jews? As he keeps using the Jews, the Jews, the Jews? Is he teaching us a lesson? Thank you, Daniel. Is he teaching us? 13,870 days of being an invalid. 13,780 days of wandering in unbelief in the wilderness. 13,870 days of refusing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The only question they have to ask is, who told you to carry your mats? The Jews are so in love with the law and with their keeping of the Sabbath that they miss Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Good thing that we don't have Catholics that are more in love with their Catholic church than Jesus. Good thing that we don't have Baptists that are more in love with being a Baptist than Jesus. Right? Good thing this problem's been eliminated. Are y'all tracking what I'm saying? This is a tenuous balance. Church, we are being confronted with sins and differences and transitions like we've never seen before. Every time you turn around, gender is being assaulted like you've never seen before. 
Men acting like women. Women acting like men and everything in between. And we hold to gender distinctions as the Bible designates, insists upon, ordained by God. Yet we are called upon to bring the gospel to even those that are struggling with gender dysphoria. And this is hard. I'm not suggesting it's easy. I'm suggesting that we have to be led by the Holy Spirit. We have to be asking ourselves every single day, is this a math? Is this more important than the Messiah? We have to diligently work through this. And it's not easy. Does it happen in Brian? You better believe it does. Do we need to work hard at recognizing those mats and making sure that they're not interfering with us seeing people for who they are? Yes. The Jews are so in love with the law and with their keeping of the Sabbath that they miss Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. What's causing you today to miss Jesus? Are there theological doctrines that you love so much that you will limit your fellowship to only to like-minded people? You got to cross all the T's the way I cross them. You got to dot all the I's the way I dot them. All right, let's end with this question. What is the right perspective on the Old Testament Sabbath? What is the right perspective on the Old Testament Sabbath? Had they lost their mind? The answer is yes. How do we know that? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 2 verse 13. Four minutes together. Let's use them wisely. Mark chapter 2 verse 23. One Sabbath day Jesus was going through the grain fields and as they were on their way the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. By the way that's one of the 39 rules. No harvesting. Even heads of grain, no harvesting. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat and gave to them who were with him. And he said to them, underline it, circle it, highlight it in your Bible, the Sabbath was made for man. What was the Sabbath? It was a gift from a gracious God. What do you, what do you mean it was a gift from a gracious God? If you were in Israel... Under this law, your boss could not work you seven days in a row. What a glorious thing to know. Every seventh day, I get a day off. That's incredible. What, what do you do? I just rest. I just rest. This was a gift from God. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then look at this blanket statement. So the Son of Man is the kurios, the Master, the Lord of the Sabbath. And they missed it. So next week we're going to talk about Sabbatarians. 
We're going to talk about the Shabbat. We're going to ask the question, how do churches deal with the Shabbat? Are the ones that believe in the seventh day as the Shabbat, are they correct? What about those who believe that the Sunday is now the Lord's day and it's the new Sabbath for Christians? What about those Christians who no longer say we're not under the law, six days shall not do the work, was for Israel, not us? Which one is the biblical position? Is it A, B, or C? Because you'll see it. Messianic Jews will practice A. Presbyterians, our brothers in Christ, will practice B. Puritans practice B. New Covenant theologians insist, no, it's got to be letter C. Who's right? Who's wrong? Does the Bible speak to this? That's what we're going to look at next week. Father in heaven, I just pray that you'd help each one of us to take down the mats that are interfering with us from seeing Jesus. From recognizing the person who needs Christ. The image bearer for whom God died for. The person I need to be kinder to. The person I need to be more gentle with. The person I need to extend grace to. The person I need to wait patiently as they grow as a Christian. The person who needs to repent and trust Christ. Father, help us this week to be spirit-filled believers who are quick to recognize when a mat is keeping us from seeing Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.